Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hello, I'm Steve Randall and this is the second of two episodes bringing you our Biodiversity in the Built Environment event. This is Constructive Voices. So, uh, welcome back from the break. Uh, This part of the event is our roundtable. Claire will be leading this once again. And uh, we'll be hearing from our panellists as they discuss uh, various uh, issues around biodiversity, the challenges, the solutions and their thoughts. Uh, Also, a reminder that if you have a question for the panel, we will bring those to you as many as we possibly can uh, towards the end of our event today. And you can put those in the chat and we will come to them a little later. So, uh, Claire. Back to you after the break. And this is going to be an interesting roundtable discussion, I think. Thank you, Steve. So, yes, I'd encourage people to put questions into the chat, please, and we will pick up as many as we can later on. So I'm going to start by asking the panel and we won't be asking. I'm not going to be picking on people and I'm not going to be asking everybody to answer every single question. So just do do chip in when you've got thoughts, because obviously some questions are more relevant to different individuals. Um, First one's really just to say to invite people to reflect on why does this all matter? What what are the big things? It's easy to focus on the doom and gloom of, you know, we're all doomed if we don't act, but what are the benefits of acting on particularly to look after the biodiversity of the world? Because I can uh, make a start on on that, Claire. I I suppose from a biodiversity perspective, there's always been two ways to look at the natural world, isn't there? one belief that it should exist for its own benefits anyway, and we just have a duty as human stewards of the planet to, to look after biodiversity. But then again, um, we recognise that biodiversity has many tangible benefits for us as individuals, as communities uh, as well. And I think we can all see both um, sides of that. So I suppose um, at, at, uh, at that level, seeing the decline of species and the um, the, the, the habitat decline as well in extent and quality means the potential for the benefits of those uh, habitats and for biodiversity for people is um, is very diminished whether that's um, withstanding um, impacts like extreme weather whether it's the sort of medicinal potential of um, habitats or species in habitats uh, around the world. There's all sorts of ways in which nature enriches us um, as uh, as human societies. And um, reflecting in my own region, we have this uh, this sort of creeping normalcy it's been referred to, hasn't it? Whereas my great grandparents would have looked across my part of the world and it would have looked very, very differently. Um, And my children would look at it very, very, differently and they assume that's normal but actually what we have is a very depauperate um, environment um, and personally I feel very much that I uh, a lot of my my mental well-being comes from experiencing nature and being out in in the natural world as well so the fewer people have direct access to that I think it has direct impacts on the well-being as us as individuals as families and communities. I, I can quickly come in on that as well and building on what Chris has said, just as a kind of uh, investor in the room to, to add some numbers um, and, and sort of disclosure, we, we've invested into a 
biodiversity measurement monitoring company called Nature Metrics. And, that, and at the time of that investment, we did a lot of work on exactly this question because, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, it, you know, we have to be investing into uh, parts of the market that are large enough and where, where there is a, a real need. And, and one of the most interesting stats we came up with uh, that, that has sort of been cross-validated is that more than half of the world's 44 trillion GDP depends on nature. And I think that takes many shapes and forms. And Chris touched on the most important ones, but, you know, food security and sort of the importance of pollinators. I think that's been reported on a lot recently, but it is, you know, fundamentally important and majority of the food that we eat depends on on that vital role that you know um organisms within within a healthy ecosystem provide um you know medicines pharmaceuticals again it's one that i actually wasn't hugely aware of and um learning increasingly more about i think i think it's fascinating you know i think there's also then a point around um viruses and the risk of not protecting nature the risk of constantly encroaching on habitats that uh you know are are non-human and and the risk that that um creates for certain zoonotic diseases jumping you know to to humans and things so i think it's yeah there's real numbers as well to back up that question around why is this important can can i come in because i um for me, the loss of biodiversity is a symptom of a really unhealthy planet. So when I'm seeing loss of habitats and loss of species, that's that there's something fundamentally wrong with our ecosystems and damaged about the ecosystems here on Earth, and they are not sustaining life on this planet. And life on that this planet is about us as well as the other habitats and species that we're talking about. So fundamentally, we are seeing a breakdown in ecosystems and life on Earth. And if there can be anything bigger than loss of biodiversity, it has to be the health of our planet. And so for, for me, that's, that's big, that's huge. And um, yes, we should be addressing and halting the loss of biodiversity, but let's look at the ecosystems, let's look at the soil, let's look at the air, let's look at the water, and let's get those right um, and think about ecosystems as a whole, because if we get the ecosystems right, then we will all survive and thrive. Thank you. And... Um... What, I know a lot of people in the audience are very aware of this, but um, just invite you to talk a little bit across the panel about what are, what's the key drivers people need to be aware of that are causing biodiversity loss and maybe some of the ones that we haven't thought about enough. People. Yeah, maybe I can say something more. <laughs> and people is true. I agree, definitely with Margarita. Uh, but I just want to say that, uh, you know, according to the IPCC recent uh, um, studies, we know that the loss of biodiversity is proportional to the temperature increase. So that is putting at risk, uh, as I said, pollination, water availability, uh, clean water, air, food security, and also coastal habitat. And also 
that we know that um, uh, effective adaptation uh, cannot prevent all the losses and damages. And above 1.5 degrees, some natural solutions may not work. So, you know, many species and ecosystem are currently near or beyond their hard uh, adaptation limits and the people that depends on, uh, rely on them uh, to survive, um, say the most vulnerable are currently near or beyond their soft adaptation limits. So uh, people and human activities is actually causing all this, all this disruption. I guess we've got a global audience here. So some of the most important habitats around the world are are being lost through primary conversion. So loss of Amazon rainforest to, to cattle ranching, um, for example, is still a big driver for, for some of the globally important habitats uh, around the world. More locally, where I am in the UK and perhaps much of Western Europe as well, perhaps we've gone past the sort of the major period of gross habitat loss and we're actually experiencing habitat impacts which are less directly tangible so things like invasive species or pollution, or indeed simply the lack of management of habitats of conservation value as well. So there are multiple drivers for this, um, and the key to it is understanding you know, which, which ones are, are, are predominant in, in our parts of the world and what are the policy levers that need to be moved in order to, um, uh, to hold them and move them into, into uh, opportunities for nature recovery. And just to add one point, what I one of the things I found really fascinating as I continue to learn about this topic is that removal of certain keystone species has such a massive e impact on the rest of that ecosystem. And so I think, you know, overfishing is a great example where a lot of the large predators have been overfished. You know, other creatures and organisms then essentially overproduce and that has a sort of deadly impact on the rest of that ecosystem. And I think that that's another one to, to sort of be very aware of that as soon as you kind of remove one thing, that ecosystem that has developed and developed this balance over hundreds of thousands of years is, is all of a sudden left in a kind of different situation and, and it, it, you know, doesn't necessarily recover. Thank you. So the first couple of questions we've looked a bit about what the problems are and why it's all our fault. Um, but seriously, what, what we've done and what we're still doing that's causing these challenges. Um, for the rest of the session, I think we're going to try and look at the, the positive part of this. So what do we need to do about it all? Um, and I'd really, I'd welcome thoughts initially on just the scale of the challenge so what what could could look like how much how different is it going to look when we've got this change of direction and just we won't instantly go from nature loss to nature recovery but what are the sort of changes that we're going to need to make 
Can I can I start? Mm, please. Um, I think my answer to this is huge and significant and seismic in terms of words that I would describe how we need to be and um, develop develop thoughts, develop concepts, the technology around this, the way we think about the way we think about biodiversity and the way we think about and address climate change and health and well-being need to be thought of within the same sphere. So we shouldn't be taking one and, and putting policy measures and levers in place for one without considering across the piece. Um, one of the one of the ones that I think is, so I'm, I sit and work in, in Southeast England, um, an area of high pressure, lots of growth and development, um, lots of people, um, limited access to green space. Um, and one of the thing, but, but multiple land use demands as, as time goes on. And one of the things that that would make a real difference to the decision making and the development here in this part in my part of the world is a better plan around land use because there are going to be competing demands for that land that land has to produce food it has to produce clean water um, it has to give people access to nature. It has to produce biodiversity at a much bigger scale than it has. Um, and it has to produce clean energy. And all those, if we're not careful, could be seen to be competing. And the, the, the challenge for us all is that we develop, we need to develop strategies and plans that are relevant locally, that we can follow locally, but actually where the contributions build up to success for climate, to success for biodiversity and to success for health and well-being. So in my part of the world, a land use strategy in England, a good, well-described land use strategy would make a huge difference and sort of signifies the different way of working and thinking in future. Yeah, I agree. I think yeah, the seismic is absolutely right. <clears throat> it just it is a massive challenge that we have to reverse nature loss, um, and I guess it is going to require change at an individual level. How we live our lives, you know, the food we eat, the choices we make when we buy things, um, the, the organisations we work for need to recognise they're all part of the problem and part of the solution, and we need to work together. Governments and international organisations need to drive ambition and really push forward for that. Um, speaking directly to finance Marguerite, you know, the finance markets, you know, increasingly look at this, recognizing that investment is going to fail if we don't address the climate and, and biodiversity crisis as well. So there's there's changes, you know, massive changes at every every scale that that, that, that we need to see. And I, I agree uh, you know, your point, Jane, around that, that sort of land use strategy. And hopefully in, in England we'll get that with nature recovery strategies for the first time on a statutory footing, uh, a, a really helpful framework and map that all parts of society can uh, can work towards. So hopefully that will become a bit of an exemplar for how we can genuinely um, deliver it and how we can plan um, how people will access the environment. You know, we can build, we can put a wood in the middle of nowhere, which is great for biodiversity, but perhaps no good for people. 
build a wood on the edge of a town that can be delivered for biodiversity, for people, for flood, for climate, all sorts of things. So that sort of spatial um, planning is really, really important. And I'm super looking forward to seeing how, how that will help us in Anglian Water do, do our job. Fun thing for us is the drive towards nature-based solutions. How can we have a kind of nature-first approach? Where can we solve problems by creating biodiversity, um, by not pouring concrete? Uh, and if, if solutions are achievable, are, are viable, technologically, I mean, then what are the policy blockers that are preventing us from doing that? Let's get those out of the way so we can funnel lots of resource into nature-based solutions as the first and uh, preferred option. Thank you, Chris. One thing you touched on was that where you put something matters. So um, put a wood next to a town, people have access, there's the well-being and health benefits of that. Um, I was thinking for everybody, one thing that I've, I reflect on when I look at these sort of interventions, is actually stepping back and looking at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. There's this long, long list of things we need to do. There's the climate emergency, the biodiversity loss emergency, but actually there's lots and lots of other things as well. Um, and we know nature restoration in the right place can help with climate, can help with health. I just invite people, have you got examples from your own experience of win-win um, approaches where you've got something that's maybe got one primary driver to what's happened, but it's given these multiple benefits. Um, it's, uh, I guess, um, probably a bit more of a local uh, example than some of the SDGs get reported at, but um, a few years ago, the uh, NHS in England and Wales um, did a programme around healthy new towns. Uh, and so worked with the construction industry um, across multiple sites in um, in England, Wales, and, and and different parts to to demonstrate ways in which um, new builds or, or or new villages or new uh, sites within existing towns or completely new locations could be developed with uh, communities, nature, and um, active travel or uh, public transport travel uh, in mind. Uh, and so construction companies were invited in to, to bid into that work, to develop um, with uh, local people having a voice on that. Um, and so it was trying to move towards that vision of what are the fundamentals that work in different places. And actually for me, what worked really well with that program was the learnings they took from each of the sites. So they didn't stipulate that, you know, one site's got the best uptake, therefore we must always build it exactly like that in all other 10 sites. It was looking at what are the what are the ingredients that has made that uptake interesting? You know, what is it that the developer's done? How is it that they've engaged? How is it that the community's responded? Uh, and how do you foster that environment that makes it be a local decision? Um, because it's, you know, it's typically it's at that level of engagement that we need to look at. And so I understand where, where Chris and Jane are coming from in terms of the scale, but I think sometimes we need to be careful that we don't just talk about it at that seismic scale because mm -hmm. then it's very off-putting. Um, and I was reminded in um, 
a session that Michael Marmot was running recently on health equity about the fact that uh, there's a quote from Raymond Williams that talks about to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than making despair convincing. And I think sometimes we're 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 walking that tightrope um, in these areas of yes, we want people to know it's a big deal, but then sometimes it feels like their only option is to be angry at uh, large institutions, whether public or private, rather than take an active interest in what can I do, you know, on my doorstep with an organisation like Earth Trust or um, in my neighbourhood um, uh, and always assume it's someone else's responsibility or or someone else's fault. And I think, yeah, there is there is something to, to Chris's point about how do we make sure that we own the fact that we, we're part of the problem and part of the solution. Unfortunately, we're not all equally part of the problem. Um, and maybe we need to reflect that in part of the solution too, you know, in nationally and internationally. But I think at a local level, there, we do need to swallow that a little bit of recognising that not all of this has been caused by, you know, m- me or the person I live next door to. But that's kind of irrelevant. We can all choose to be angry at it and do nothing. And then it's only going to get worse. Or we can all swallow the fact that we're not all part of it, but we could maybe do something small that is going to make it a bit better. I think I think that's one of the big challenges, isn't it, John? That um, that because the the scope, the size of the challenge is so big yeah. that trying to enable people to connect locally with nature and get them to understand that they can can make a difference, and each of their small changes that they make can build into something that addresses these seismic challenges. But I think um, one of the key things that the Earth Trust focuses on human decision-making because yeah. it's us, it's us all, we all make decisions day to day about what we do and the, the damage, let's say, that we cause the environment or the positive contribution we make and because as a society we've lost our connection with the environment and we don't understand the i don't think we understand the impact of our decision making that that's a problem for society so building these communities for that want to make change happen all our communities should be being built and supported to make change happen and then we can really eat away at these huge challenges yeah, I I agree. I think there's also a, there's something under underpinning that too, though. That I think even where communities want to come together and address this, particularly in uh, some of the more advanced economies, it, advanced purely from a GDP point of view rather than from a healthy point of view, because they're often uh, at opposite ends of the spectrum, but. I think sometimes we've developed society in such a way that we don't allow people time to think about this stuff. We keep them so busy and so focused on growth at all costs that we don't do what you know you you put up on your slides about Earth Trust being about how do people thrive. And I think we unfortunately sometimes translate thriving meaning economic growth. Um, and oftentimes those things are not a good match. 
and so we can thrive with great construction uh great um great buildings great infrastructure and not always be about let's drive gdp thank you um i'm just i've got a few more questions i could ask but i'm going to just ask one more before we start to look at the ones um from the listeners in the virtual room I said one got in messages to share thinking sort of thinking focused specifically on the built environment industry, which is obviously particularly relevant to constructive voices. Are there any key sort of challenges and opportunities for people working in that context? I guess one is I'm mean, thinking about water, which I'm bound to at some point today. So it, it, it's one of the most obviously sort of connected parts of the natural world, isn't it? And if we're thinking about development um, and how um, you know the houses that we're living in now, the infrastructure that we have now is going to be existing when climate change projections are you know at full tilt, we need to think about how we can retrofit um, them to both be water efficient, um, but also then to manage the threat of flooding and extreme rainfall events through the use of sustainable drainage systems, which will then deliver a wider biodiversity benefit for communities living there. So um, that, that link you placed in the chat, Steve, around people moving within 15 minutes, you can imagine that retrofit suds in our communities where that's possible could play a component um, uh, of doing that. Similarly, at the other end, the treat, treatment of water um, one of the things we're very interested in doing is using treatment wetlands where we're using the power of nature to treat the water rather than pouring more concrete and using um, more uh, energy as well. So if we if we can start to think about the natural world as a connected system and recognise that you know, different bits of society and the economy are connected to it, it goes back to my first point around how we can collaborate and plan um, much better, particularly for those parts of the world like the one we're in in the southeast of England, which are going to be, you know, in one hand short of water and then at periods of time have too much water to, um, on our hands to deal with. I guess, Claire, from, from my perspective, it's um, it comes back to, uh, I guess, how you how you sort of summarised this, this whole round table. You know, it's about how do we understand, commit and act. And I think for me, I need to recognise that, you know, I, I don't know enough about the construction industry, but what I do know is there's some incredible work going on and there's been some incredible effort over years and decades to look at these challenges and, and let's start from a position of let's understand that and work with uh, those that are on that journey rather than uh, assume that they, they don't know this stuff or that they, they aren't interested in these topics. Um you know, we we all started this conversation by saying it's the importance of bringing expertise together and to keep learning together. Um, I think some of the challenges that the construction and, and built environment sectors have faced and continue to face are frankly insane, what they're having to deal with and cope with, uh, to then also being thrown this as, right, you also need to fix this without any additional long-term support or mechanisms to to engage or grow or, or skills and capability to to train. Um, yeah, I think they're doing doing some phenomenal things in this space. And actually these these sorts of sessions are how do we learn from what they're doing in you know in tight 
economic situations and you know how do we how do we share some of that from a spatial point of view um because they'll have their own spatial plans about what what could go where and when um and jane knows i uh, i'm sat in a similar part of uh, uh, of england to to jane and it does sometimes feel like there's there's lots of growth going on and lots of building going on but statistically speaking it's nothing compared with other parts of england or or certainly other countries and so how do we how do we do what we want to do locally uh, in construction and, and built environment but also encourage it to to happen maybe more fairly or um more in keeping with what we want collectively rather than saying you know let's protect this because it's a it's a, a city that we think is worth protecting and these other cities aren't worth protecting so we'll just keep building on them um that's not the fault of the construction or the, the built environment sectors that's uh yeah something we need to discuss at uh, a broader scale i think and i think for me it's how do i get better understanding of what what the challenges are before we expect commitment and action and from my perspective i see a whole lot of um, really good work going on to develop um thinking around construction and testing new approaches in terms of construction. I think one of the things that it, that the construction industry can do really well is, is doing that permeability to the environment. So recognizing that the landscape, the landscape in which that built um, environment sits is just as important, important as the building itself and designing the development and the landscaping, the green landscaping of that development in harmony to enable that connection between people and the environment. I can I think as well, Claire, it's sorry. one of the, sorry, Roberta, it's, it's one of the questions as well in the chat around the biodiversity net gain legislation and, you know, whether that 10% is enough. But I think, you know, I think that you, there's no moving away from the fact that, you know, buildings and infrastructure and construction in general, one of the key kind of um, contributors to, to habitat loss. And, you know, yes, there are actions that are being taken and there's this legislation being put in place and and that's really helpful but I, th I think it's as well you know it's what Jane just mentioned like where there are spaces it, just because there's a green space it's not a given that that is necessarily a big contributor to, to biodiversity and so how do you how do you maximize the space you have and how do you also set ambitious targets as a construction firm to to do more and do better I think the 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 legislation that exists in in various countries is helpful, but you know that that shouldn't be the goal, right? That should be the bare minimum, and and that that's something that we often sort of challenge the the large engineering firms that we talk to. That you know how do you how do you set yourself up as a leader in this space in recognition that this is ultimately a big contributor to to human health and so many other aspects the in the final comment i'd make is that going back to the point around solutions there are solutions out there that can help to achieve some of these um outcomes and you know one example that this isn't a com company that we've invested in but there's a there's a company called eConcrete which focuses on concrete for marine settings and they've developed a a, a concrete that is specifically you know beneficial and and enhances biodiversity rather than 
um, rather than causing further further harm. And so I think it's also about being proactive uh, to identify solutions such as that that can actually benefit the the environment. Yeah, I just wanted to add that from the point of view of the climate change, I mean, we know that buildings contribute to 18% of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, globally. So uh, very important for the construction to, to, to come out with a solution to make this building car uh, carbon neutral. And, and there are a lot of uh, examples on this uh, and uh, you know more isolations because uh, um, uh, less less consumption uh, heat pumps uh, instead of gas and uh, uh, all sort of solution that uh, the you know it's a big contribution of this community to reduce the the, the carbon. Uh, uh, emissions, uh, the, the greenhouse gases emissions. So, so I see um, from this aspect, uh, uh, key players, uh, key stakeholders, uh, and uh, that hold the key solutions to climate change. I think it's also good, you know, it's worth noting, you know, organisations like 2150 are obviously incentivizing some of that change as well, right? And, and there are government schemes too as well, but... Um, I don't know if we're allowed, but Steve, Pete, what do you see as the the opportunity, and where have you seen it through through your conversations? You know, is there enough? Are there enough incentives to be making those changes in construction, or is it still small and in in corners and in pockets? Um, yeah, thanks, John, for asking the question. Um, being honest, I, I don't think there's enough of a drive just being a uh, boots-on-the-ground type of a builder. Um, yeah. I think regu regulation has to change. I think there's movements in certain aspects of construction um, in general in terms of heating systems, and certainly there's been upgrades in, in terms of the energy efficiency of, of our, our buildings. But I, I think we need to start moving more in the direction now of not just uh, how efficient our homes are when they're built, it has to be now the, foot, the carbon footprint that is created through our construction itself. Um, and there's, yeah, there's steps going in the right direction, but in terms of it being mainstream, I don't think we're, we're anywhere where we need to be yet. And I think there has to be a big push and a big support from um, the, the powers that be globally. And I, I really do think that this is something that has to be done globally. It's it's great to hear uh, Margarita saying that, you know, her uh, outlook is on how biodiversity and climate change can be also a good investment. Because let's be honest, it is the best investment. What's the, what's the point in having anything, uh, investing in anything, if, you know, it's only going to depreciate due to climate change and due to our, our whole environment. So um, I suppose to answer the question, it's, you know, we have made some steps in the right direction, but I, I really do feel some more dramatic steps that need to be, be made. We've had some really interesting people on the podcast. We've had some great guests and they've given great uh, insights. But I think mm. your, your, your uh, analogy of, of pockets is, is probably the best one to use. There's a lot of very good ideas that at this moment in time haven't been fully joined together. But um, it, it, how we do that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges because I think 
there is a lot of very good ideas out there and it's how they all uh, get linked together to create a, a, a system that everybody can kind of join into that that will get us to to where we need to be is the way I would, I would look at it. Thank you, John and Pete. Um, Steve, we've got a few questions in from the audience now. How how would you like us to run this? Shall I just do? You, do you want me to be your not not very glamorous assistant and read, sure. them, <laughs> read them out, and then and then the panel can uh, can answer them? Um, actually, we've got one on email here from uh, Sue Guang. <laughs> Uh, from DTU Wind and Energy Systems, she's saying, I'm asking the following question. Are there concerns on the biodiversity of ocean due to the rapid deployment of offshore wind farms? What can we do to protect and promote biodiversity in the ocean while developing offshore wind farms? So uh, I don't know who wants to, to, to take that one. I can comment. I'm not sure I have a perfect answer. I think it's a great example of of the tension that sometimes exists between climate change and and actions that are being taken to to mitigate climate change and biodiversity. Um, I think the 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 one thing I'll say is that um, a lot of the largest offshore wind farm companies are really focusing on this and and partly that's being driven by regulation and by policy and increasing recognition that you know you can't be benefiting climate but but at the same time sort of completely depleting the, the biodiversity of that particular environment and so you know one of the one of the companies that we we've been speaking to about this topic is a company called Orsted they you know they're one of the largest offshore wind farm um companies um they're they're very much focusing on this and and often i think you can't avoid the fact that you know constructing these these massive turbines and putting them in place is going to have a negative impact it's about what you do you know how do you contribute plus then some to ensure that that damage is made up um that, that you know the starting point to that is often measuring you know measuring what is that impact that you're having and um you know nature metrics um company that we, we've invested in that's exactly what they enable they actually enable measurement so you know measure it and then kind of hold these companies to account because in many cases it is inevitable as in that um but but you know the world does need more renewable energy i think that's a key point um knowing what's there knowing what the impacts are but actually that measuring and delivering on what's been promised i think that's something that applies across yeah. the whole built development industry is if somebody's getting permission to do a scheme, then promises are made, commitments are made at that point. And it's really important to make sure that those things happen. Yeah. Because if something's give, it's supposed to give an, a net benefit and it doesn't, then those promises weren't real. And the, you come back to the basics of if you're going to be trusted, you need to be trustworthy. Yeah, it's it's not just a paper exercise. This is about um, with carbon and with nature, what happens on the ground or under the sea in this case. I think I think also we need to recognise that we're not we're not starting from uh, a blank sheet either. So I think when we want to measure, it's a shame sometimes that you know, and it happens hugely in my area of health and care that we only ever insist on measuring when we want to put something new in. And we very rarely take a measurement of what's the baseline beforehand. And I imagine the baseline before 
offshore renewable energy is probably, you know, continuing that status quo is probably worse for biodiversity than putting in offshore renewable. And then, as Marguerite says, working with the teams to try and make sure that you mitigate the the piece. I think, you know, I think um, others have put questions similar to this in, in the chat. I think sometimes we we utilize the fact that complexity makes us go, oh, we can't decide yet. And I think it's, is it Tony Robbins that talks about complexity being the enemy of execution? And sometimes we just go, well, it's complex, therefore let's just keep the status quo. Um, and actually, you know, if we are going to honor those decisions about let's understand, let's commit an act, we can't spend all of the time trying to get the perfect understanding. Um, because then we'll never have time to commit and never have time to act. Um, and so for me, it is about getting that getting that status quo. And, you know, Jane mentioned a great example about land use. Um, that's, you know, one thing where we need to get a status quo of how is the land currently used so that we can then have the discussion about how we want to use it. You know, in, in England, uh, back in 2011, Royal Town Planners Institute suggested a way to do that so that you could model all of the different policy decisions about where houses would go, where trains would go, where roads would go. They built the map. Um, it was ready to be uh, published and we're still waiting for uh, a government to go, yes, that sounds like a good idea. Let's have a, a consensus view of where all of these plans are so that we're not you know, building houses on the same place where someone says that's where our train station is going to go and that's where our school is going to go. But at the moment, we don't have consensus that we need that baseline. Um, and that make for me, that's what makes it very difficult to then say, how do you measure an improvement or a mitigation or a biodiversity loss if you don't know what your starting position is or your status quo? Excellent. Right. Shall we move on to some questions in the chat then? Uh, this one from Steyn van der Schuren. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, what role or importance do you see for biodiversity inside our buildings, but also extreme urbanized environments where air pollution is very high and green spaces do not mitigate all negative impacts? So inside the building and also those uh, those urbanized uh, environments with high air pollution. Who wants to take that one? Don't all rush at once. I'm, I'm happy. Happy there to you start. Go. There, there you go, helps. John. There you go. Um, so, uh, in a previous life, we did quite a few projects around around air quality, um, both ambient and indoor. Um, and globally, it is the case that the indoor air quality tends to uh, have more have a larger impact on on fatalities um, and long term conditions. And typically, that indoor air quality is as is as a result of the energy. Uh, that's being being used for for cooking and heating the property rather than uh, the materials of the property itself. So for me, it's about how do we make sure that what we're constructing and what we're supporting globally are, um, as as Margarita said, you know, not just the bare minimum of standards, but actually, you know, what what should be exemplified as this is good. This is good policy of you know how to heat your home, how to um, provide energy to 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 cook and to um, stay healthy, and that some of that there is a responsibility in the construction industry, but certainly not exclusively. Um, and so for me, air quality is a really important topic, um, and the fact that um, the UK and other places they are starting to recognise 
that it is causing deaths um, hopefully means that people will um, have those conversations. And it, again, it comes down to spatial conversations, you know, so collectively buses are better for a town than cars uh, in, in regards to air quality, but standing at a bus stop is one of the worst things that you can do for your exposure to air quality. Um, because it's normally where cars are idling. It's normally where buses idle. Um, same with train stations. Train stations are notoriously bad for air quality at a personal level. But collectively, societally, train stations are very good um, for air quality. So it's we need to have that spatial understanding to have those conversations about that doesn't mean we shouldn't have train stations or we shouldn't have buses. But how do we mitigate the fact that bus stations are? are bad for air quality how do we i think one of the other conversations in in the chat is about you know how do we encourage families to adopt some of this and um how do we for me these topics are about how do we not necessarily rewrite curriculum but make sure that the curriculum that you know uh children are learning has a an air quality or a biodiversity angle to it um, so we did a project looking at maths and, and science because we were a, a STEM company um, and said, you know, at certain ages where typically um, health and physical education drops off, this is what's in the maths curriculum. Why not learn those graphs in relation to the air quality in their local area? Uh, and then they can have that conversation. They're still learning the curriculum. It's not putting undue pressure on teachers to to teach another topic they're still learning about bar graphs and histograms and various other bits but they're saying actually we've got a problem in our local area with air quality are you going to walk to school and are we going to put on something that helps you to walk to school um or are we going to encourage your parents not to idle by the school um, and to turn off your car engine when you're being dropped off and for me it's those types of small examples that feel a bit more manageable um than saying we need to drop science or maths from the curriculum and suddenly do biodiversity studies. I think it's how do we how do we embed it more in everyday life? And that's why, you know, um, people like Jane and, and the team at Earth Trust is it's great examples of that where it's it's on the doorstep and it's about engaging in the in the day to day rather than let's rewrite society. Thanks, John. Yeah, it was um, Emma Nicholson who asked the question about how we uh, support biodiversity in our homes and further educate families and also uh, bring the knowledge and education into primary and secondary schools. And it always seems to me, you know, from a layperson's point of view that we when we need to uh, and when we feel the the danger personally, we can educate ourselves very quick. I mean, we're, everybody in this uh, in this uh, room is. Uh, an expert on COVID because we ed educated ourselves very, very fast. And perhaps we need to uh, do the same thing with climate change, with biodiversity and, and recognise the, the danger to our personal uh, welfare and our families and wider society, of course. Has anybody else got anything to add on that sort of education piece on how we can get the messages out there? Yes. Can I just go back to the plants in people's homes and connect that through? So there's there's passive education, isn't there? And there's active education. And we know that gardening and outdoor gardening and indoor gardening is a real way into people's lives and into their connection with the environment and learning about how to grow something and how something thrives and what you do in order to um, encourage it to thrive and what sometimes you do to um, do the reverse actually helps people's understanding of 
of nature and the natural world and their connection with it. And um, we learned during COVID that when people couldn't get out, it was those house plants and growing things indoors that that really kept them going. Um, so my point here is that although the question might seem um, flippant in terms of growing houseplants, actually that is a real way into people's lives. And as a result of that connection, they're more likely to want to understand more. I think that there's a, there's a different, there is a different approach when we come to a slightly different approach when we come to formal education. The, the major challenge there is around the curriculum and what and how we can um, embed environmental studies, the breadth of environmental studies within the curriculum. There are places to get into the curriculum through primary through the primary schools. It's far more difficult in secondary education yet. That is, that is where the majority of young people are, they have their concerns. I think if I can just give a very quick shout out, the, the Natural History Museum is actually doing a lot of outreach work, specifically working with schools across the country um, on this topic, which is, is really inspiring. So if anyone's interested in finding out more, I would encourage you to, to look up Urban Nature uh, network and natural history museum. I was I was recently speaking to the team there and was really blown away by the work they're doing. Excellent, thank you for that. Um, Finton has asked a question in the chat. At some point in time, environmental issues were divided into two camps: biodiversity concerns and climate concerns. This needs to be addressed, and the two brought back together to ensure that one perceived benefit does not impact on the other. Both need to improve in tandem. This is the essence of BNG. Who wants to pick up on that one? I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. We've got, I think there's also, I've seen a really good diagram um, that some people posted of environmental tunnel vision, where somebody's looking at a circle and all around the edge are all the different environmental issues that we should be thinking about, including biodiversity loss and everything, and all the different aspects of the challenges of climate change. And there's just a single line that they're looking at the word carbon. And even within climate change, there's this fantasy that if we somehow get carbon management right, it'll all be okay. And it simply won't because climate change is happening. So we've got to adapt to it. Um, absolutely, this is all linked. Um, there's also the human health thing. There's something about holistic thinking and joining it up to say this all matters we're not going to solve one thing and not worry about the others but it's also it can be daunting that complexity and i do worry about the fact that if we rattle off this incredibly long list then people just go really and you start to fall back to the default position of maybe i won't do anything because what if i what if i go and buy a, a beehive and think I'm doing great things for pollinators. And then actually I find that putting domestic bees out there is harming native pollinators. So I think having the information on the issues, but also information on the, the safe initiatives, the things that will do some good and won't do harm. So where can we do like go peat free, 
I would challenge anybody to say um, stopping having peat in your garden. What environmental harm would doing that cause? Because actually digging up peat, there's been calls to ban it in the UK for a long time because recognising the harm to wildlife of destroying peat bogs. But actually, we now know peat bogs are incredible at capturing carbon. But even that, you think, well, that's simple. Let's just say nobody cuts peat ever again. There are communities where that is part of their their very long term way of life. So there's always got to be a bit of sensitivity. I've just seen there's a there's a comment in there. Some just said we should be obsessing about soil microbes again. Yes. So where the things that are safe wins and it's also it's then when you do a little bit of action it gives you courage to do some more as well and claire just to bring back to the construction industry i think what you've highlighted is the need for all parts of the sector or sectors but the construction industry is a good example mine my industry is a good example of that sort of multidisciplinary need that we have now we need to recognize that we have to collaborate as different specialists in order to get um, address all these sort of more much more complex inter interconnected problems that we have to fix when we're building new assets or refurbishing uh, refurbishing them, because you're absolutely right. We um, we we risk like the, the the wind farm in the sea um, example. We risk damaging one for the sake of the other. But if we can uh, bring our disciplines together, then we'll have a much better chance of uh, of making progress across all fronts. And a lot of this, I think, comes down to the evidence that is available and how that evidence is then translated into frameworks or ways to take actions. Because to Claire's point and points that have already been raised, you know, th this is complex. And each of these issues, sort of climate change, biodiversity, loss, health, they're, they're complex in their own sort of disciplines, let alone when you start looking at those links between them. And But I think the more evidence you have, you know, the more you're able to synthesize that evidence and come up with, you know, simple, straightforward recommendations, policies, regulations, incentives, the more likely you are to, to achieve better outcomes. And, and again, you know, that is that is something that's happening increasingly, I think, to, to talk again about the Natural History Museum, just because I was so fascinated by the work they're doing. But, you know, they're undergoing this project right now to digitize all of the um, collections that they have and I think they mentioned they have 80 million uh, sort of individual samples and I saw some of them and you know these are like flies from the 1920s that are, have been preserved they're now digitizing all of this data and once that data is digitized they can do a lot of work around uh, using sort of machine learning to do essentially predictive analytics and you know what where was the the sort of climate when we had this sort of biodiversity these types of organisms and, and a lot of this work, which, you know, once that evidence is available, then that hopefully feeds into the policy discussions and, and other discussions that can lead into then well, what should what should, what should the business community actually be doing? Because to Claire's point, like, it's not always clear. I was at a, um, fortunate to have a similar tour around Kew Gardens and they're doing an equivalent project, um, creating pictures of all of their plant records so that those can be available to people throughout the world at the touch of a button but they actually they showed us a sample of a plant that was create, collected by Charles Darwin 
and they've been able to take DNA from it to help with identifying the links with other species. It is mind-blowing what the science would do. I think one thing I was thinking in terms of the simple messaging, kids love nature. You get them out in nature and um, they they will engage with that. W whatever their past experience, if you've got the right sort of communicator with them to make them feel welcome. One of the things that's sad is somehow we lose that. And I've loved it being in meetings with companies like House Builders, where you give the message, looking after nature is sound business sense. And actually, you find there'll be people around the table who feed the birds in their garden and are suddenly going, hang on. So I'm allowed to care about nature in my job. And there's that light bulb moment for people to think nature is good business sense suddenly is quite freeing and it can turn the art, turn the conversation around. Excellent. I, I have a question for Roberta, which may seem like a, like a bit of a flippant question, uh, perhaps, but um, from a media point of view, I mean, I've worked in uh, various forms of media, radio predominantly, um, the way that we talk about weather and climate, I mean, it, it seems to me that sometimes the media get it so wrong and that doesn't help with uh, the overall messaging, the overall education piece. You know, we will get those those scorching hot summer's days and you, you'll hear uh, people on the radio, for example, talking about how fantastic it is. Do, do we need to be changing the messaging and not have those conversations? I mean, yeah, everyone likes a warm day. But when this is part of something very, very serious, do we as a society, but specifically for the media as well, need to be talking in in, in slightly more muted terms, perhaps? Uh, sure. And, but, but this is, uh, you know, especially for England, probably this is not the same in the other part of the world where, you know, when the temperature really is rising is uh, affecting the health and uh, and of many people and uh, and uh, heat waves are really killer but i think i, I agree with you uh, that there must be we need to develop more uh, a forecast or a, a, an impact based uh, conversation or uh, messaging where we can say we don't say just uh, you know tomorrow is uh, this temperature but is uh, you know like uh, what is for you, what is for this region? What is what are the impacts of this uh, um, of this temperature? And uh, and uh, it's very difficult to do that because you need to you know if you think about the climate risks, uh, you have uh, you know the hazards, uh, and then we can predict our work in WMO is to predict those hazards or those extreme events. But then there is also all work that we need to do on vulnerability and exposure so we need and i go back also to what was you know uh, asked before we need to build more and more on uh, uh, in uh, exchange data and integrate data uh, because we will learn a lot from uh, how uh, you know, all these uh, biodiversity loss, climate change, and other factors are influencing, are impacting our lives. And uh, the conversation has to be, what is the impact rather than what is the situation, you know? Uh, I think we are slowly moving towards that, 
but we need to improve much more our communication, uh, our messaging uh, strategies. I agree with you. Thank you. Thank you, Roberta. I know you, you need to, to leave us, so that may be the last time we hear from you today. So I want to say thank you before you, you leave us in case we overrun. Um, but thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, lots of uh, lots of chat still coming in, Claire, in the uh, in the in the chat. There, people coming up with all kinds of different ideas that we should uh, treat um, the uh, the the whole uh, interconnect as as part of the family. Talk to, about the planet as part of our family. Talk about the planet as our customer. You know, these are these are useful ways to start thinking, aren't they? Things. Yes, I've also seen some um, comments on the internet about companies saying, we're going to give the planet a seat on our company board. Quite what that looks like, I'm not sure, <laughs> but it's it's a really cool concept. And I think it helps focus the mind. And also this is something actually investors are asking. They're, they're challenging companies. You know, we want to see the evidence. We want to see not just a an ESG report, that's great, but, give us the detail, reassure us that there's robustness behind it, that you do know what, what's going on in your company. Do you, do you think the ESG, and I maybe uh, invite Margarita to comment on this as well, that, that the ESG, um, you know, those those three elements that make up ESG is too broad for one person who sits on a board to be responsible for all of those, given that there are so many topics that fall under ESG, and actually that maybe at this stage, uh, the the certainly with the big companies, they need somebody on the board who is the environmental champion or who is the director of, uh, you know, of, of, of climate mitigation or whatever it may be. Yes, yeah, so I give a great, very quick response because unfortunately I also need to run. But I mean, the quick answer is yes, it is too broad for one person. Generally speaking, it's not just one person. The entire board is supposed to be thinking about ESG and obviously the the board exists because of the G, the, the governance of a company and, you know, the, the board's kind of one of the main ways in which that governance is implemented. I, I do think it is something that's increasingly recognised. And one of the great things about COP15 and the framework that now exists is that it has shot up to the top of the agenda for a number of large companies that, you know, have been grappling with sort of carbon and, and you know, the great thing about carbon for all I fully agree it's not perfect is that it is relatively simple and straightforward you know it's this one thing that you need to measure and reduce and you know to to a certain extent offset uh, although that that's a whole other sort of topic but I, I think you know that that's the good thing that now increasingly people and companies are asking about biodiversity and you know where, where do we start that tends to be sort of the the question and you know there are companies and solutions and resources out there to to grapple with but you know definitely it is it is something that i think um, management teams but also the boards of companies need to continuously evolve on and you know there should be a greater focus there should also i think in my in my view be a greater focus on what does the e and the s actually mean because the two things that most companies have focused on are you know, diversity and inclusion and specifically gender, because that's the easiest, most obvious one to, to try and sort of fix and have quotas on and carbon, because they're very, you know, they're very sort of specific. Um, I think it is really time to kind of increase that, or broaden that agenda out and 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 try and have, you know, a, a greater, more ambitious sort of priority list, which includes biodiversity and nature. Fantastic. Um 
Margarita, thank you very much for your contribution. In fact, uh, thanks to all of our panel. Uh, Claire, obviously, a lot of people needing to uh, to, to move on and, and do other things this afternoon. So um, I, I will hand over to you uh, for some final comments. I just want to end with a massive thank you to everybody. It's been great. Everyone on the panel, you've contributed so much, but also we can just see from the rapid fire of comments with people interacting with each other in the chat and thoughts sparking there. It's great to have this sharing of knowledge. One thing I'm conscious of is people have joined this call. It already shows that people care and people understand that there's an issue. So I think there's, um, it's great to have some like constructive voices getting the message out to share with people who may be in your audience who aren't thinking environmentally. So raising awareness for the people who haven't yet embedded it in their thinking. But yes, it, this is a conversation that needs to continue and it's great to have had the time today to do these reflections. The timing couldn't be better coming after COP15 in the UK, we've had the government announcements today. There's momentum that we need to be part of, but also then hold governments to account and say, let's see those promises. How do we all work together to make them real? I think the point several people have made about there's so much to do, we've got to be working together, we've got to be working at all scales. Yeah, thank you everybody for your time this afternoon. Can I can I John, ask a yeah, question? Yeah. Um, I guess maybe just uh, for Steve and Pete and team to continue the conversation beyond this this episode. So Margarita touched on you know, the importance of evidence and 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 how does that um, how does that implement changes or how do people make different choices because evidence grows and we learn things? I guess one of the things I'd want you guys to have a think about and and construction generally is if you are you know as, as pete was describing earlier more hands-on at the at the actual building end and you're a smaller entity how often would you want to be you know have a job on your on your six month you know work schedule that says actually we're going to pay you to learn how to use this new um new way of building or this new material it can't come that you you know you can fit that in and do that work for free so how do you have that added into your schedule so that we don't just reserve esg or eshg if you're going to include health as just something that big companies do and then everyone else just gets told what to do um it'd be good for you guys to have a think about you know within construction where does that fit in and how do we make sure that you guys have the space to actually work with some of this new material or work in the new ways that are being, uh, I was going to say constructed, but that's a bad choice of words. Um, but yeah, how how are you part of that conversation? And I think Jane put it in the chat earlier about we can try and bring different disciplines together, but that normally means those that have got the free time to do it. Um, and how do we make sure that actually, you know, the guys that are actually doing the, the acting more often than not are are the smaller firms or the um those that are just getting on with doing the building they've always done it in a particular way because they don't have the headspace or the the opportunity to learn new materials and and try things out and fail and that for me you know claire's point about the bees is is part of that of actually it's okay to get it wrong um but it feels like in construction we don't allow 
lots of the smaller companies that that freedom that in lots of other sectors we do allow people to learn and and, and fail and use the wrong material or do the wrong thing. Um, I'd love to hear more from you know from your next set of podcasts to look at what what would be needed from your sector and how can we in other sectors support you to do that. Um, thanks very much, John. I uh, love the way you're throwing a couple of questions back at me and Steve, which is great as well. But um, no, it, it's, it's it's brilliant that we've had such um, different point of views, all with the same collective goal here today. And without the, the shadow, without it's literally why constructive voices has uh, been set up. And, and what we want to do is, is to continue the conversation. And we want to look at it from everybody's perspective and see, can we learn from each other and can we put systems in place um, to try and improve all aspects of construction, whether it's a commercial, domestic, um, large and small scale. And uh, I, I absolutely agree with everything you said there. Um, I don't think until we make it mainstream, I used that, that word earlier as well, and I really do believe that it has to be mainstream. You're dead right. People, they have to be able to give them the time, but they also have to be able to give them economic opportunity to to do this because if you're asking a builder of any scale to commit a certain amount of time to do something that means money and that means yep. you know and, and unless that's going to have a benefit for him economically or, or the entity economically or uh, she economically it's it's just it's it's not it's not going to be viable and therefore it gets overlooked and it gets put on the long finger so i think it was brilliant uh thank you very much to everybody uh, who came on today um, Fantastic. Well done to, to, to Jackie, Steve, Claire, um, all our panellists and everyone else that listened in as well. It was, it was fantastic to hear everyone's perspectives. And believe me, this will not be our, our, our last round table. I'm looking at this subject from a lot of different perspectives and other subjects going forward as well. So thank you very much, everybody. Brilliant. Thanks, Pete. And thanks to everybody. Claire, final word to you. Thank you all again. It's been a great afternoon. Lots to think about, lots to take forward. Thank you very much. And just a reminder, constructive-voices.com is our website. We're on social media. The podcast is available pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. And we'll be back with lots more events, lots more things during 2023. So please continue uh, to join us for these because the conversation is building. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We'll be back very, very soon. (laughs) 